and welcome to the Folklore Scotland podcast. Every two weeks we're going to be bringing you the best of Scottish folklore. Folklore Scotland is a charity founded to protect and preserve Scottish folklore through taking a multimedia approach to compiling and sharing folktales, telling the tales of the past with the technology of today. and welcome to the third episode of the Folklore Scotland podcast. Tonight we are celebrating Burns Night. Um, I'm David White and we've got with us... Rebecca. Roisin. Mila. Bethany. First up speaking we've got Roisin who'll be talking to a bit about the life of Robert Burns. Okay, hi everybody and happy Burns Night. Uh, Burns Night takes place every year on January 25th as as the celebration of the Scottish bard Robbie Burns. Scots come together to drink, laugh, recite their favourite poetry and eat haggis. In Scotland, you become very familiar with Burns from a very young age. Burns Night is celebrated in schools and at home. But just in case he's still a mysterious figure to you, here's a little bit of backstory. Burns was born in 1759 to William and Agnes in Alloway, Scotland. They were tenant farmers, people who farmed on rented land. Although his family were very poor, his father ensured he was educated, first at a local school in Alloway, and then an heir. His school days were cut short, however, by his fam- family's financial situation. He returned to farming until his first poetry collection became successful. Soon, though, he needed further support and became an exciseman, or a tax collector in Dumfries. Robbie was very fond of the ladies. He married Jean Armour in 1788, but he is believed to have fathered eight illegitimate children by five different women. You'll find that many of his poems celebrate one woman or another. One of his earliest poems, actually, Oh Once I Loved a Bonnie Lass, was dedicated to Nell, believed to be Nell Kirkpatrick, his first love from his time in air. Moving back to his poetry, though, his career was launched in 1786 with his first collection, poems chiefly in the Scottish dialect. Over the next 16 years, he would produce a collection of original work, as well as renovated traditional Scottish folk songs in the Scots Musical Museum. One of the most famous works from this would be Old Lang Syne, belted out drunkenly every new year in Scotland. Burns was writing during a period in Scottish history known as the Highland Clearances. During this time, inhabitants of the Highlands and Islands were forcibly evicted from their land resulting in the destruction of traditional clan society, Scots Gaelic, and a continuing pattern of rural depopulation and emigration. The last big battle in defence of the Highland Lords was not long before Burns' birth, actually, on April 16th, 1746, in Culloden. There, Bonnie Prince Charlie and his troops were defeated, and thousands of Highlanders were killed, leading to a hunt through the Highlands with the express aim of wiping out as many Highland clans as possible. Following this, the British government heavily restricted the power of the clan chiefs and the Gaelic culture that underpinned it. For example, the banning of clan tartans and bagpipe music. These events were accompanied by an attitude of, if not hatred, then at least distrust of Highland culture. This historical setting is really important in understanding Burns and his legacy. Personally, I believe that the dialect style writing Burns used in his poetry is probably the reason he's so celebrated today. The poems are made to be recited in a Scottish accent. I could try myself, 
but I think I'd end up embarrassing myself and everyone else in the podcast. Not only this, many of his poems celebrate the land itself. Burns expressed the wish of becoming the Scottish national poet. However, in 1796, Burns passed away of rheumatic fever with only one pound to his name. Considering how far-reaching his legacy is, though, I think he would be pleased to hear his dream came true. A key moment we could mention there is the recitation of A Man's a Man for All That at the opening of the new Scottish Parliament. I found it quite interesting that he had done quite well for himself for quite a while. He was speaking at dinners with lords and things. He was quite well known in society, but then he still died with absolutely no money. Yeah, it's incredible. He managed to spend the majority of his wealth in a period of 18 months, I found out. What did he spend it on? In that 18 months, he'd moved to Edinburgh. He had all these high, fancy friends. And this is where he met the majority of his women. And after he ran out of money, he went back to poor Jean. And she just accepted him. She was like, all right, Robbie, I guess you're here now. So it was a bit like your modern day lottery winner. And I heard that even when he did die, like with the pound to his name, um, on his deathbed, he was trying to settle debts and he'd borrowed from friends and things to pay for his voluntary military uniform from the local military police people because he'd volunteered to make himself look better in the in the news, in the Dumfries after moving back from Edinburgh. And... Um, it cost him a lot more money than he thought. <laughs> He's like, what use am I going to have for the uniform? I'm dying. But <laughs> they made him pay for it nonetheless. I do I do feel so bad for him, but I just, I feel so much worse for Jean. I think Jean is the unspoken hero of, right, Rabbi Burns in general. Like, I want to know more about her. Well, there is, there's a statue of her in Dumfries, uh, in a bit of land just across from the church where Robert Burns is buried. There's a statue in honour of her. She deserves it. Yeah, good on Dumfries, really. Did any of his other wives get a statue? No, I mean, he only married the ones. The rest were all just kind of one-night stands. Or they did have some kind of interesting affairs. So he had a pen pal. Um, I think her name was Agnes. But he never actually met her in real life. But they had a relationship that lasted for a really really long time and he wrote so many poems to her about how like oh despite the fact that we'll never see each other like I still love you so fiercely and she's actually buried in Edinburgh um, just down the street from Holyrood I like that he also stated that he just wanted to be Scotland's national bard like that is manifestation to the max it really is he seems to have kind of lived life to the full for a lot of it anyway (laughs) not necessarily in a very good way but he did what he wanted to do a lot of the time I mean who else to be Scotland's national bard than someone who is just like completely ridiculous the definition of a hedonist it was quite interesting as well that he's like despite being quite well known in the higher societies and everything. And there was like societies to think still too at the time. Like his followers were very kind of devout followers of his poems. They released a, a book after his death of his collected works to fund the, the lifestyle of his, his wife and child, but children. But yet he was still managed to get himself into the gutter just yeah. by being <laughs> his flamboyant self. Like it takes quite something to be able to spend so much money so dramatically and leave yourself absolutely nothing i think you could do it i I second that (laughs) if anyone could do it it would be david it would be absolutely it'll be spent on very nice suits and wine (laughs) or old books So, Burns Night is an important night in the Scottish calendar, as Roisin pointed out. It's celebrated on the 25th of January each year, 
and is an evening of festivities, celebrating all that's traditionally Scottish. It marks the birth of perhaps Scotland's most famous poet, and certainly that most beloved by schools across the country, Robert Burns. He lived for many years in Dumfries, just a few miles from where I grew up, and a couple of summers ago Rebecca and I visited his home in Mausoleum, there on the anniversary of his death. Burns Night for me was always a memorable occasion growing up. Uh, I grew up in a small rural village and it was one of the two big celebrations of the year, the other being the village show. The parish would come together in the village hall, warm inside while the mists of winter blew off the side of the building. We would hear readings from the school children and on, on the odd occasion, one of the more eccentric gentlemen in the village would give a dramatic reading of one of Burns's poems. My favourite perhaps being an awe-inspiring rendition of Tam all recalled from memory. A huge variety of clan tartans were always on display, and with the amount of hairy knees on show you can be certain no Scotsman in my village was ever called in a kilt. <laughs> Following these readings, the mainstay of the evening would be brought out, the haggis. This was typically donated by one of the larger landowners in the region. It would be carried in on a large silver salver, being led by a piper and sat at the head of the table. This was known as piping in of the haggis. And depending on the length of the song and how big the venue was, it could often result in several laps being undertaken before being placed on a table. Having piped in the haggis to the great delight of all those who came to celebrate the evening, it would then be addressed by the person who carried it in. The address of the haggis is one of the three consistent Burns verses you'll hear at all Burns nights. And I'll read it out to you now. Fair fire on a sonsy face, great chieftain of the pudding race. Aboon them all ye tack your place, pains try perthern. Weel are ye worthy of a grace as lang's my earn. The groanin' trenchers there ye fill, your hurdies like a distant hill, your pen would help to mend a mill in time o' need, while through your pores the Jews distill like amber bead. His knife, see rustic labour dit, and catch ye up with ready slit, trenching your gushin' entrails brick like honey ditch. And oh, what a glorious sect, wan, reekin' wretch. And horn from horn they'd stretch and strive, deal tack hindmost on they drive, till all their wheels swelled, kites belive are bent like drums. And old Giedman most like to arrive, be thank it turns. Is there that o' their French ragout, or olio that it store sou, or fricassee that make her spew with perfect scorna, looks down with sneering scornful view on sicaduna. Pure deal Tiamori's trash, as feckless as a withered rash, his spindle shank a gied whiplash, his nave in it. Through bloody flood and field to dash, oh, how unfit. But mark the rustic haggis fed, the trembling earth resounds his tread. Glap in his wily navel blade, he'll knock it whistle, and leagues and arms and heeds will sned like taps a thistle. Your pills that map mankind your care and dish them out a bill of fear. Old Scotland wants nae skinking wear that jumps and luggies. But if you wish her a grateful prayer, gear her a haggis! That deserves a round of applause, all from memory. I was going to say that. He said, I'm going to read it out for you now. But he lied. It's not even on the page. That's great. Oh, that's fantastic. That is a tree mark of someone who's just heard that from birth. <laughs> so, having done the, the address to the haggis, the haggis would have been sliced apart in the midst of the verse by the knife-wielding speaker, and then that would then be carried off the kitchen, where those who'd volunteered, often made up by no small number of the ladies' rural, would dish out a hearty plateful to every person, often with some left for seconds. Prior to eating, the Selkirk grace would be said by everyone. This being the second of the pieces of Burns' verses that I mentioned earlier, 
although unlike the last it's believed to only be attributed to him, as a prayer similar but by a different name was known for around a hundred years prior to Burns first reciting it in the Earl of Selkirk's dinner. The Selkirk grace went, Some he meet and can eat, and some he meet he want it, but we he meet and we can eat, so let the Lord be thank it. Far briefer than the last piece I'm aware, but we Scots are hungry people and not renowned for patience. So a quick grace does just grand before getting tucked into a meal of haggis, neeps and ties. After dinner was finished, the dancing would begin, and very quickly everyone from the young children of the village to the 90-year-olds would be up dancing. A traditional Scottish Cayley led by a traditional Scottish Cayley band never fails to get a whole room on their feet, although it must be said it's one of the most exhausting wins to spend an evening, however entirely worth it for the massive amount of fun had. The night would continue on from there with people dancing, laughing, drinking and singing, and a very good time was had by all. And finally, the third Burns verse heard in all Burns nights, and most countries on New Year's Eve, is sang by everyone as they danced hand in hand in the big circle, rounding off a perfectly wonderful night. That song, of course, Old Lang Syne, which I will not sing for you now. <laughs> Go on! <laughs> Having come to Dundee several years ago, I have also had the opportunity to attend a few student Burns Nights, Cayleys, and while not quite the full country experience, still contain the usual good food, good friends, brilliant dancing, all in all making for a wonderful evening. And even in the busier cities of Scotland, Burns Night is still celebrated with enthusiasm. And as the years have gone on, it's become more of an international affair and with the invent of the internet is wildly distributed, live streaming services are now streaming out traditional Scottish Burns Nights in Scotland to everywhere. And that's all I've got to say on the matter. I also just want to let you guys know, I've just come across a fantastic bit of news, that in honour of Burns Night, a packet of haggis has been launched into the edge of space. (laughs) (laughs) That is brilliant. Where is it starting from? Can we track the haggis? It's taking off from Simon Howie headquarters in Dunning. It will travel over Stirling, Falkirk, Edinburgh and the Pentland Hills before landing safely in Lauder, lauder in the borders. Safely being said very loosely. Yes, I think that haggis will well and truly be inedible. Heading down towards the borders with a haggis. Uh, it sounds like we're trying to bomb the English with haggis. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, the primary method of defence in the independent Scotland. We're just going to have ballistic haggis. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Most people won't go anywhere near it, so it could be surprisingly effective. I, I was going to say, I like how uh, you mentioned the Burns Nights internationally being streamed, um, because I know China actually have a really big one. Um, they're big fans. They're big fans of anything Scottish, uh, and Burns Night is definitely on their calendar. I do remember. I think one of my most prominent memories of living in America was my parents decided to have a huge burns night in our home and the kids were not allowed because there was going to be so much whiskey consumed so we were all sitting up at the top of the house and my hear my dad's address to the haggis which he still knows off by heart and he sometimes just launches into saying it um (laughs) and then after that the yelling as these americans were trying their haggis was the most entertaining thing Drowning it in ketchup just to get through it. Oh no! Have I ketchup? Awful, awful. But afterwards, they did have a Kaylee, and I honestly thought the house was going to come down. It was just such such a lovely experience to have, and everyone was just so interested in it. 
And, you know, all the Americans had come in with their kilts on and everything. They'd rented them. It was fantastic. It was a really enjoyable memory. Oh, that's so sweet. No, anyway, I just want to mention, it's just so lovely hearing about how international Burns Night has become, especially with it's so easy to just leave Scotland or, you know, come back to it in my case, I suppose. But you leave Scotland and it really feels like you're thousands of miles away from home and yet still you can find a Burns Night and just celebrate all the same things. And they've been the same since the first Burns Night, which was five years after Robert Burns' death. And it's uh, reported to be exactly like the ones we do now with the address to the haggis and everything. That's so lovely. That's amazing that stayed through the years, the tradition, because so many, so, so often you find traditions change over the years as different people add to them and take things away and so on. But that's, that's lovely that it stayed and remained much the same. of the haggis. Um, The haggis is Scotland's national dish and it was brought to fame by Burns in 1787 with his poem Addressed to a Haggis which we've heard David do a wonderful rendition of already. Um, So I just want to talk a little bit about the haggis and its kind of folklore connections. The haggis is a creature native to Scotland that depending on location, highlands, lowlands etc, varies in size uh, around about a guinea pig to a badger. They have a thick mane of hair across their backs, which helps shelter them from the often harsh Scottish weather. And the most distinguishable feature about them is the legs on one side of their body are shorter than the other side. This is an evolutionary adaption that allows the haggis to more easily traverse around a hill. It varies from haggis to haggis what side the longer legs are located on, but this does unfortunately mean that they can only move either anti-clockwise or clockwise around a hill. They can't therefore interbreed with haggai of the opposite leg type, and this has also become a popular hunting technique where haggis hunters will chase the haggis in the opposite direction, causing it to topple over and roll down the hill into their waiting nets. The Kelvin Grove Art Museum, and this is a fact, exhibits a taxidermy wild haggis alongside a fully prepared and cooked one for comparison, and the label identifies it as the Haggis Scoticus. Haggis hunting has been popular in Scotland for hundreds of years, but specifically around the time between St Andrew's Day in November and Burns Night at the end of January, as families want to get their catch, uh, as families want to catch their haggis for their traditional celebration. Uh, we do have a few domestic haggis farms in the Highlands, but they have come under fire by, recently by haggis purists insisting that the meat of the wild haggis is much better. But you know, we're not going to get into politics here. I'll leave that up to you guys. Um, what I'm about to say may trouble some of our non-Scottish listeners, but I want you to know that I'm telling you this in complete confidence, and you're now in on the joke, and you must henceforth uphold the great haggis farce. If you don't know already, I regret to tell you this is all a lie. The haggis creature does not exist, but let's keep that between me and you. The Scottish FBI are going to call you in and be like, what did you say in your podcast, Rebecca? So the haggis is actually the national Scottish dish that has been transformed through the power of folklore into the lovable creature that I just described purely to trick tourists. Haggis is actually a dish that contains a sheep's pluck, which is its lungs, heart and liver, alongside onions, oatmeal, beef suet and spices, all stuffed and sewn into a sheep's stomach and boiled. And it's delicious. The origins of the haggis are largely disputed. Some claim that it may have come from the Norse, and I apologise for the pronunciation that I'm about to butcher, um, hagv, meaning to hack to pieces. The ancient Romans are reported to have a type of haggis as well, and there's mentions of something like it in Book 20 of the Odyssey, where it says, 
And as when a man before a great blazing fire turns swiftly this way and that, a paunch full of fat and blood, and is very eager to have it roasted quickly. More recently, the 1615 book, The English Huswife, by Gervas Markham, references a dish described, described as oatmeal mixed with blood and the liver of either sheep, calf, or swine, maketh that pudding, which is called the haggas or the haggis. The first Scottish mention of the haggis is in 1520 in The Flighting of Dunbar and Kennedy. As a side note, flighting is a contest that was popular in the 15th and 16th century Scotland, and it basically consisted of two parties exchanging insults in verse, which I think is beautiful, and we ought to bring that back. The haggis food has a fairly mysterious past, and this is where it gets interesting. The earlier ideas about haggis centre around the practical use of haggis in culture, and it's very likely that these happened in various capacities, things like sheep stomachs making an easily transportable meal for a long journey, or workmen being allowed to keep the offal of slaughtered animals. It's actually a very good way to make sure that no meat went to waste, so it was both delicious and practical. Like all good pieces of folklore and legend, the story of the wild haggis has been repeated and changed so many times that we don't really know where it comes from. But we do have a poem written by a Scot named James J. Montague in 1924 edition of the New York Tribune that describes a wild haggis hunt and it goes like this. My heart's in the highlands, twa strings on my bow, to hunt the fierce haggis, man's awfulest foe, and weel may my bairn hae a tear in his ee, for I shall not come back if the haggis hunts me. Which, it's satirical, we know this, but it's also a little bit more sinister than the ridiculous creature we talk about. Um, just the fact that he's alluding to the fact that this haggis is going to hunt him, which is slightly terrifying. Um, also, I like how, I never noticed this before, but it also references a Burns poem um, called My Hearts in the Highlands in the first line there, which is nice. Um, and it kind of circles back because it was Burns that made haggis famous through Address to a Haggis. So there you go. So haggis hurling is also a part of the great haggis myth that has become popular popular over the last few de uh, decades. In 1977, an Irishman named Robin Dunseith advertised in the national paper for people to enter the World Haggis Hurling Competition. He claimed that this was a 17th century custom where women tossed haggis to their husbands while they worked in bogs and then the men caught them in their kilts. This man actually became the president of the World Haggis Hurling Association and wrote a book about the, the sport's history only to reveal decades later that it was all a hoax and the reason that he gives for doing this is actually quite honourable. Um, he says that myself and a few friends were annoyed at people exploiting Scotland for their personal advantage, selling all this rubbish, tartan knickers and tartan pencils to tourists. Um, so we invented haggis uh, hurling and it's still popular today at Highland Games across the world. Um, the championship is held annually and the record is held by Lorne Coltart who threw a haggis 217 feet, which is insane. <laughs> What's that in metres? <laughs> About, what, 65-ish? <laughs> oh my god. So they don't actually need to send the haggis into space with a rocket. They can just get this guy to send it straight up into orbit. <laughs> That's the most Scottish thing I've heard tonight. <laughs> Another popular haggis event is the Great Selkirk Haggis Hunt, uh, in which the people of Selkirk in the Scottish borders all parade up Selkirk Hill, uh, led by a piper to hunt haggis. They set off at 11.02 precisely, and they stop partway there at the community centre to dance a haggis polka. I watched some videos of it, and it appears to be a dashing white sergeant, as far as I can see. They've just called it a haggis polka. 
Um, I can't find anything else about this event, why it started, who runs it, what it's there for, whether there's an, like little actual bundles of haggis on the hill or if they just play pretend. Um, there's rules on the weapons that they're allowed to use. They can use like sticks and things and homemade bows, but they're not allowed to use like actual knives. So I don't know. There's no information about this event online apart from when it happens. Um, all we know is that it happens and that they dance a haggis polka. So the Scotsman newspaper until fairly recently, I think, because I can't find anything past 2012, held a virtual haggis hunt where they set up cameras around Scotland. And if you saw a haggis appear in one of the live streams, you could win a trip to Scotland. Um, most recently, adding to the haggis lore, Scottish TikTok user What's Her Name 1.0 posted a TikTok explaining to her followers the tradition of catching your pet haggis, where she said, We actually do keep Haggai as pets and you usually go hunting for your haggis at six years old and hunting season is usually at January time. To help capture the haggis, we usually bring a bottle of iron brew and sprinkle it across the fields and then usually the haggis sniffle the scent of the fizzy beverage. Once your pet haggis passes away, we eat it as a, as, as a family. This has been a tradition for Scottish people for many years. So I just think it's a perfect example of the way that folklore works. Um, you know, there's this thing, like, it's a sheep stomach filled with guts and we eat it. But someone was like, nah, it's a wee furry beastie. And then someone else was like, aye, and it has two short legs and two long legs. And then someone else was like, and we hunt them. And then years later, someone else said, we keep them as pets and eat them when they die. And suddenly you've got this whole evolutionary lore of this wildly exaggerated myth. And I just think that's beautiful. People have their own interpretations and bits and pieces that get added throughout time. I know in the past at school, um, I've told people that a haggis nest is called a sporin, and that's why where we get the name for the purse on the front of a kilt from. And I just think it's peak Scottish dry humour, and I love it, and it's my favourite thing. And I'm 100% shamelessly guilty of spreading this hoax, because it's just perfect. So, if you don't didn't know about this before, you're now in on the secret. It is your duty in life now to keep this secret you know tell people henceforth that the haggis is a creature and that's a fact that's wonderful i love how it's just been passed on from a history someone was like obviously some english person came in and was like oh so what is the haggis really and a scots person has just been like oh it's an animal <laughs> we hunt it would you like to come on a haggis hunt with me Building on the thing you said about the sporins as well, that's what we used to say. That's why sporins are furry. We skin the haggis <laughs> and put the fur on the, top of, on the back of the sporin. I, I think it fits very well as well with Scotland's national animal being the unicorn. But fair, isn't the English national animal a lion? And who's seen many lion running about? <laughs> who's seen many unicorn running about? Yeah, I mean, at least lions exist. You've not been down my way, Roisin. There's quite a few unicorns gandering about. Have you never been to a zoo, David? Yeah, I said roaming about. David thinks lions are a myth. And I like that in Selkirk they have that haggis hunt. Yeah, there's very little information about it. It sounds like it's a secret event. Maybe they've got the real Haggai. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what they're up to. Um, What sound have you guys heard that the, the haggis makes? Because my favourite interpretation is that it makes the sound of a bagpipe. So you could just be walking through like the tranquil Scottish countryside and then just Yeah, I heard bagpipe. Especially when squeezed. I heard that that's the older ones and then the younger ones make like a little honking sound. <laughs> With the the droning sound. And they, and because ha the legs haven't quite grown, they, they have to kind of hop around the hills <laughs> chasing their oh parents. The little haggislings. <laughs> 
<laughs> I want one, and I know they don't exist, but I want one. <laughs> Shall we move on to Mila and Bethany's bit before we spend all evening talking about haggises? Oh, I could spend all evening talking about haggises. quite a lot today. Uh, I'm not actually originally from Scotland and I moved to Dundee when I was about seven or eight years old Um, and English isn't even my first language so when I moved here I didn't know very much English Um, and when I I actually came here in January 2004 and this lined up really well with the annual Burns Night obviously Um, and it was completely new to me. I'd never heard of Burns Night before. Um, I'm originally from Europe and we don't really celebrate it. Um, So coming here I found out lots about haggis um, and bagpipes and Robert Burns poetry. And I mean, I laugh about it now, but at the time I remember panicking that I would have to learn Scots just exactly the way it was spoken and written in Burns poetry. And I recall thinking that I would never be able to learn it and I'd never be able to communicate with the locals because I didn't understand their language. (laughs) So um, when we were in school, we'd obviously be asked to recite poetry uh, in class, specifically Burns poetry in January. And as you can imagine, I was pretty nervous to do that. Um, I was really panicking that I wouldn't say it correctly. And in fact, I can almost guarantee I wasn't saying it correctly. Um, but now, I mean, looking back, it was it was fun. And now I've been introduced to more traditionally Scottish things. So um, things like Scottish country dancing, uh, I really enjoy that. I'm obviously looking after my own pet haggis now, so I'm fully integrated. Um, <laughs> but one of the poems that I remember learning about um, was Tamil Shanter, which is uh, one of Burns' longest poems. It comes in about 224 lines and the original actually has four more, so 228 lines. Um, so imagine reciting that in school. <laughs> um, and fun fact about Tamil Shanter is that the Scottish bonnets are actually named after the poem. I think a lot of people sometimes assume it was the other way around, um, but it just goes to show the influence of Robert Burns into present day, that so many people recognise the Tamil Shanter bonnets to be something very Scottish. Um, and they're recognised all over the place, they're in souvenirs, they're everywhere. Um, so with the poem, um, it's a lot. It's very long. It's uh, a lot of commentary on drunkenness and things that can happen uh, when you get very drunk in Scotland, obviously. Um, <laughs> and it evolves around the story of Tam and his friends who are drinking in a pub in Ayr. And one of the characters that we meet in the poem is Suter Johnny, uh, who is unfortunately quite a rowdy drunk, at least in the poem. We can't know for sure. Um, but what we do know is that it was based on real people. And a good friend of mine who has come on tonight's episode uh, is actually a distant relative of Suter Johnny. Um, so Bethany, this is the part where I would pass on to you so you can tell us a bit more. I mean, yes. So um, Mila asked me to come on today. Honestly, I don't really know <laughs> um, how to phrase this, but um, I am very, 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 very loosely <laughs> related to Suter Johnny and Tamashanter. My dad and I, about uh, six years ago, were doing our family history because I really wanted to know about, you know, where I came from and all that sort of thing. And we found out that on my granddad's side, we are related to a lady called Margaret Davidson McAdam. So we obviously looked more into the Davidsons. Found um, a relative um, called John Davidson, who lived right next to Shanter Farm where um, Robert Burns used to hang out and um, found out that they were friends and he basically decided to make fun of his best friend by making him a notorious drunk in Tamashanter. <laughs> and he remains my most famous relative. 
related to Scotland's most famous drunk. Have you continued on the family tradition? I mean, I mean, I mean, Mila could probably tell you more about that. <laughs> well, it's really your duty more than anything else now. And Tamashan is probably my favourite one as well, I'd say. Like, just such an epic poem. It's a proper epic poem, yeah. like... And probably one of the ones that was most stemmed from bits of folklore of the region as well, then. It was said that his nanny had actually said that a lot of his stuff growing up, he was really inspired by different folklore and folktales of the region, and that drove some of these poems. Less so the kind of popular ones of two haggis and things, but unless you go off your little furry haggises. But... <laughs> <laughs> With regards to Tam Ashantner, a lot of it was. Yeah, it's essentially um, Tam and his friends um, go to the pub one night um, <laughs> and things get a wee bit out of hand. Everybody goes away and leaves him and Tam goes, you know what, I'm going to get on my horse and I'm going to go home. <laughs> so it's essentially olden days drunk driving, which I wouldn't advise. <laughs> and it cuts to his wife waiting for him at home. Um, getting angrier by the minute because it's, you know, like three o'clock in the morning and he's still not back yet. <laughs> um, and um, he, as he's riding home, um, he notices that the local church is all lit up and he goes, oh, what's going on here? So he decides to jaunt over, have a little look and, of course, it being Scotland and, you know, witching hour, there's a bunch of witches having a ceremony <laughs> at the kirk. Um, and Tam is just entranced by what is going on and um, watches them for a little while. And then one witch is like the best dancer ever. And he screams out at her like, well done, Cutty Sark. And then in an instant, all is dark. And all the witches decide that they don't want to be catcalled, thank you very much and start um, chasing him down the road. Poor Meg, his trusty horse that he's still on, um, ends up getting with her tail ripped off by one of the witches, <laughs> I know. Um, and um, he ends up jumping over the river and as um, witches in a lot of folklore and especially in Scottish folklore, they can't cross water. So by jumping over the river, he's safe and he manages to make it home. I'd like to think that Kate in um, Tamashanter is also loosely based on Burns' wife because the amount of stuff that she would have to put up with, I mean, honestly. <laughs> My grandpa grew up at one point, uh, he lived at one point on the farm that was next to Robert Burns' farm. Like, his dad was a, a farm labourer and they travelled all about different ones and he lived in the farm next to it at one point. Many years after Burns, uh, but he told me when I was younger and I being young and gullible and still arguably gullible now but <laughs> he said to me oh i used to talk to robbie burns over the fence and i was like, i don't know how old i thought my grandpa was but i believed him wholeheartedly but i was like oh yeah how was he saying oh yeah he was talking to robert but was he now <laughs> burns died what in 1790 so it'd be at least kind of like 230 250 years ago so yeah very old grandfather yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's the secret? Haggis. Haggis, yeah. Haggis, whiskey, and iron brew, the fun, like, perfect trifecta. <laughs> so, thank you for listening, everyone. And um, thank you, Bethany, for being our special guest. Yeah, we don't thank often get a celebrity on here.
<laughs> I'm hardly a celebrity, but thanks. For the sake of Burns Night, you're a celebrity. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, thank you all for coming along. And happy Burns Night. And happy Burns Night. Folklore Scotland podcast is brought to you by Folklore Scotland, the charity that seeks to tell the tales of the past with the technology of today. You can visit our website at www.folklorescotland.com. If you're keen to become a voluntary contributor or would like to get in touch, send us an email at info at folklorescotland.com. You can also find all of our social media links and a complete list of sources for today's topics in the show notes. Your hosts today were David, Rebecca, Rasheen, Mila, and of course our special guest, Bethany. Many thanks to Lindley for helping with the research for this episode. This week's intro music was provided by Daniel Green on the violin and Lindley Barber on the harp. And thanks again to Lindley for providing this episode's artwork. You can find Lindley's website in the show notes as well. Stay safe and we'll see you next time. (laughs) 